Jesus was Jewish, and his Jewish identity informed every aspect of his work, his words and witness, so much so that as Christians, our faith is actually impoverished when divorced from its Jewish roots. So how should we live our faith differently? Well, that's the discussion you'll be a part of today. Welcome to The Land and the Book with Old Testament scholar and Israel trip guide, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Charlie, I'm curious, how has your recent trip gone for you? Well, John, it was a great trip. Uh, we, we experienced the wild weather at times. In fact, uh, we were on Masada. By the time we got done with Engedi heading back to the hotel, that day we couldn't even see the Dead Sea from Masada. It was uh, absolutely incredible, but it was a great time, and we had a good time with the group. Well, we've got an interesting set of news stories to look at, but first, this thought. Do you know that most Jewish people have never heard the gospel? Of course, each week here on The Land and the Book, we talk about Israel and the Jewish people, and it's important to remember that they, like everybody else, need to hear the good news. That's right, John. Life in Messiah, a ministry in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. We've interviewed several Life and Messiah staff on our show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God is doing around the world through them. Well, now Life and Messiah is offering a free gift to Moody listeners. It's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. Receiving your gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook, which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people and will equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them. All right, that's a great thought. And let's swing our attention now toward current events from the Middle East. Charlie, you've got a unique vantage point there. The major events this week in Israel were the back-to-back celebrations of Yom Hatzikaron and Israel Independence Day. What are these events like, and did you get to experience them before you flew home? Well, you know, in terms of what they're like, uh, those two events, along with last week's Yom HaShoah, are sometimes called Israel's National High Holy Days. Uh, Sadly, the first event, Yom HaZikaron, began just as we were leaving the country, though we did get to see people stopping their cars and standing beside them, which they did at 8 p.m. Wednesday as sirens sounded across the country for one minute. Yom HaZikaron is Israel's version of our Memorial Day. Uh, It's the day they remember their fallen soldiers as well as those who've been victims of terrorism. Now, unlike in our country, Every war Israel has fought has been in or near its borders. And the country is so small that everyone seems to have a neighbor, friend, or family member who was killed in battle or in a terrorist incident. And that makes the day very solemn and very personal. The opening ceremonies took place at the Western Wall on Wednesday night. And then on Thursday, another siren sounded, this time for two minutes at 11 a.m. Following that, there were public and private memorial services across the country. And then finally, at 7 p.m., another state ceremony took place on Mount Herzl, which is Israel's National Military Cemetery, uh, their version of our Arlington National Cemetery. As soon as the Memorial Day is over, their Independence Day begins. It's like having Memorial Day and the 4th of July back to back. The official name for this day is Yom Ha'atzmot. This year, Israel was celebrating its 74th birthday as a nation. Now, I've been in Jerusalem on Independence Day, And it really is something. Uh, Having just come out of such a solemn day, they immediately shift gears and celebrate the freedom that so many gave their lives for to achieve. Uh, The official beginning of Independence Day flowed right from the ceremony that ended Memorial Day on Mount Herzl. The ceremony had performances and speeches and the lighting of 12 torches to symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. 
and all across Israel, that night there were parties and fireworks displays. And then the next day there were parades and military flyovers and families went on picnics and visited national parks. Now, in one sense, I wish our group had been able to stay in Israel to experience both days. Uh, doing so allows people to see up close and personal how complex and emotional the situation in the Middle East really is. Well, Ramadan ended last Sunday evening while you were in Jerusalem. How was the situation while you were there, and what might we expect in the coming days? Well, we personally didn't experience any difficulties while we were there, but there was tension. I do expect that tension between Israel and Hamas to continue. Hamas is trying to take over the West Bank from the Palestinian Authority, and they're doing so by positioning themselves as the defenders of Jerusalem and the Islamic holy places. Uh, That's a theme that does resonate with many Palestinians. But Hamas still doesn't want to push too far. Uh, They're licking their wounds after the conflict with Israel last May. So watch to see if Hamas allows protests to resume along the Gaza border with Israel. For the past two years, they've had individuals release balloons with firebombs attached to float across the border and set fields on fire in Israel. Now, Also, watch to see if Hamas is able to encourage protests against both Israel and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. The Palestinian Authority will do everything possible to keep such protests under control and arrest those who promote them. But protests could potentially escalate and get out of hand, especially should Palestinian Authority President Abbas's health decline. And certainly Iran is doing everything it can to stir up the pot. Now, Ramadan was a politically tense month, and Sadly, it's going to be followed by other events that are little more than excuses for Hamas and other terror groups to push their Islamic agenda. So Israel will definitely need to remain on guard. From Moody Radio, you're listening to The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar, frequent Israel traveler. I'm John Geiger. You know, after years of neglect, volunteers, I'm told, are working to clean up the archaeological sites in Tiberias. What has been uncovered, and why is it so significant, Charlie? Well, what's been uncovered there really is more significant for Jewish visitors than for Christians. But having said that, I believe it is significant. Christians are less interested because there are no recorded events from the life of Christ that actually took place in the city. However, archaeologists have uncovered the palace that belonged to Herod Antipas. He's the Herod who killed John the Baptist. Uh, They also found a 7,000-seat Roman-era theater, And the floor of the Byzantine-era synagogue there had a beautiful mosaic featuring the signs of the Zodiac. Or at least it did until vandals tried to destroy it several years ago. And that event actually illustrates the problem they've been having. Uh, The original site is within the current city's boundaries. And as a result, the Israeli government has been reluctant to make the site a national park. But without that funding, sites are left unguarded and open to vandals. However, there's a push right now to move forward. Both the Israel Antiquities Authority and the city of Tiberias are hoping a bill will be presented in the Knesset to make the new park a reality. In the meantime, volunteers have been trying to clean up the different areas which have been buried under trash. Christians would be interested, I think, in seeing the Palace of Herod Antipas, as well as the remains of the theater and the mosaic in the synagogue floor. Uh, Jewish visitors would be interested in all those as well, but they would also want to see the place where the Rabbinic Council of Sages compiled the Talmud nearly 2,000 years ago. Now, promoters want to turn Tiberias, they say, into Israel's next Caesarea. I'm not sure if it'll go that far, but certainly making it into a national park will help preserve the ruins and provide visitors with good access. Charlie, so it's, it's around the city of Tiberias proper? 
Yeah, it's actually on the south side of Tiberias. For those who've been there, you know, the city's been migrating north. And so it's down near the area where the hot springs are on the south side of the town. Okay. Well, with sky-high energy prices, a discovery by scientists at Tel Aviv University could help speed up the transition to the use of so-called green hydrogen as a renewable source of energy. Tell us about this latest innovation from Amazing Israel. Yeah, I found this story fascinating in part because of a science fair project I did about 45 years ago. (laughs) Uh, My project was on using algae to promote the production of oxygen while generating food in space. Uh, Let's just say that project was an idea that didn't quite work out. But this latest innovation from Israel takes algae to a totally different direction and a new level. We know that hydrogen is a clean source of energy. When it's ignited, it combines with oxygen to form water vapor, H2O. Most hydrogen today is produced from natural gas, and it's a non-renewable process that's often referred to as gray hydrogen because the process actually generates carbon dioxide. These scientists in Israel have discovered a way to generate hydrogen using algae. This renewable source of hydrogen is what also makes it the so-called green hydrogen. The researchers identified a mutant of a known strain of microscopic algae that allows for the production of hydrogen gas via photosynthesis, and it does it on a large scale. Uh, This new variety of algae can produce hydrogen for more than 12 days in the experiment that they've done while preventing the accumulation of oxygen, which is what poisons the enzyme producing the hydrogen. Uh, The hydrogen that's produced could be used in fuel cells to convert hydrogen to electricity, and that would allow the hydrogen to power bicycles and even small cars. Uh, They're also working on a pilot project to produce hydrogen from algae in larger volumes. You know, someday, John, your car could be powered by a non-polluting hydrogen uh, produced by a special algae. And when that day comes, well, we need to be sure to thank the researchers from Amazing Israel for their contribution. And that's a look at current events from the Middle East. Charlie, what about your devotional today? Where are we going? Well, John, we're in that series on mountaintop experiences. And today we're heading with Joshua to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. One last question. Uh, We were talking earlier about Ramadan wrapping up. You've been to Israel many, many times. Do you honestly sense just a little bit more tension as you're leading a group when you're there during Ramadan, or is it, nah, not so much? Well, you know, it's interesting. We were there on the Temple Mount even uh, during Ramadan, and we didn't experience any tension at all. But during the Fridays and during other times, there are places where the tension is palpable. Coming up, Jennifer Rosner, Finding Messiah here on The Land and the Book. Stay with us. Exactly what is the relationship between Judaism and Christianity? Why is this such a big deal? Coming up, it's a journey into the Jewishness of Jesus and why that matters to you today. Welcome to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, and before we embark on today's journey, let's tank up on this fresh idea for outreach. The moment has come. You've shared your faith with your Jewish friend, maybe for the third or fourth time, and of all things, they do want to pray. They do want to receive the Lord Jesus. What then? Greg Savitt, how do we lead the conversation? Well, if you get to this point, praise the Lord, well done, I just like to go over the diagnostics of the person's faith. Uh, Do they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, that believing him we have everlasting life, and that you're trusting him as their Lord and Savior? And if that's the case, 
There's no right A, B, and C. It just comes from your heart. And just ask this person to pray this prayer with you, and you pray the prayer. And after it's done, and ask him, do you understand that? And he'll say, yes. What you need to understand is a couple things. This Jewish person hardly knows anything about his faith. All he knows is he loves Jesus, that he's died for our sins. I mean, he knows very little. That's why the most important thing at this time, once you get this person uh, receives the Lord, get him into fellowship with the church or Messianic congregation. You can continue to disciple them week after week, but the best thing they can get is in a faith community. And people that I've seen that have not been in a faith community, they usually lose their faith in a couple years. So that's number one importance. That's great wisdom from Greg Savitt, who serves with Rock of Israel as director of Jewish evangelism. Dr. Jennifer Rosner teaches systematic theology at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, where she completed her PhD on the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. She's the author, among other books, of Finding Messiah, A Journey into the Jewishness of Jesus. She and her family live in Northern California. Hey, thanks for taking us along on your journey today, Jennifer. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You have written that when we begin to understand Christianity's indelible relationship to Judaism, key aspects of the Christian faith come alive, and the wonder of the gospel becomes clear in new and powerful ways. Well, for the absolute beginner, what in the world does that mean? What should it mean? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, because of lots and lots of history that, um, that you know, would take us a long time to get into, Judaism and Christianity have essentially become entirely separate religious traditions. And, and, and I think, you know, a lot of Christians have this very vibrant Christian faith without thinking much about Judaism, the Jewish people, God's covenant with the people of Israel. And so part of my teaching and writing and my goal in this book is to try to think critically about that history and about what events in history led to Judaism and Christianity becoming these separate and in many ways mutually exclusive religious traditions, and trying to press into what can Christians learn from thinking more deeply about Judaism and, and as I said, God's ongoing covenant with the Jewish people. Well, since you have taken this that direction, how have we arrived at the place where Judaism has so little to do with our Christianity today? I mean, there's really a number of different ways that we could answer that question. And some people would say, well, it goes back to the New Testament. Jesus sort of came to, you know, show a new way and maybe show ways in which Judaism wasn't working. Or if not Jesus, then Paul came to do that. And Paul came to found this thing called Christianity And there's been a lot of recent scholarship that I think is very compelling that's reading the New Testament in an entirely different light, saying, no, Jesus was the long-foretold Messiah of Israel, and the only way that we can really understand the words, the actions, the death, the resurrection of Messiah is within this larger context of God's ongoing story with the people of Israel. And Paul never left Judaism behind. Paul, you know, many are arguing, was like a Torah-observant Jew until the day that he died. And so if he didn't come to found Christianity, then what did he come to do? So there's, there's a lot of conversations that we could have just about the New Testament in and of itself. And then as we sort of march forward through history, uh, we could stop at these key moments throughout the the trajectory of of history and say, for example, the Council of Nicaea, which takes place in 325. It's convened by the 
this sort of Christian Roman emperor named Constantine. And again, we, we could sort of stop there and say, what happened at the Council of Nicaea? Well, first of all, we get the beginnings of the Nicene Creed, which many churches still recite today. But also we get a very political decision about forever uncoupling Easter from Passover, which in the New Testament, it's very, very clear that the final events of Jesus's life are kind of overlaid onto the significance yeah. of Passover for the Jewish people. And so you get these kind of, this kind of political trajectory whereby certain figures in history are very motivated to detach Christianity from Judaism. Dr. Jennifer Rosner teaches systematic theology at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. To what extent do you think our growing disconnect in the evangelical world from the Old Testament has contributed to a disconnect from the Jewishness of our faith? I think to a large extent, and not only, you know, a sort of disconnect in that maybe we don't talk about the Old Testament, maybe we don't read it quite as much as the New Testament, but even when we do engage the Old Testament, I think the lens through which we often engage it further reinforces this divide. So, for example, uh, you know, a lot of Christians look at the Torah, the, the commandments of God to the Jewish people, and many of them seem so obscure and so irrelevant, you know, commandments having to do with, you know, dietary laws or, you know, to get very bodily, as Jewish tradition does, things like skin diseases and genital discharges, all this stuff in Leviticus that just seems so irrelevant or kind of far off, far-fetched, abstract. A lot of Christians don't know what to do with that stuff. And I think that if we press into that and if we understand more about how those texts and that relationship between God and the people of Israel functioned, it actually allows us to understand more mm. deeply what Jesus was all about and what it means to be followers of Jesus, far from, you know, Jesus doing away with all of that, to understand how Jesus interacted, for example, with the ritual purity system or the temple. Um, I think there's a lot to be mined there that kind of requires us to think in lines of continuity between Old Testament and New Testament. You suggest that as Christians, our faith is actually impoverished when divorced from its Jewish roots. Give us an example of this impoverishment. Yeah, I mean, one example, and it's a bit complex to unpack, is, is something like the Sabbath, which uh, I think the Sabbath is a central component of God's covenant with the people of Israel. And I don't think that it applies exactly in the same ways to Christians, but I think that if Christians are to learn from what it means for there to be this day that is set aside for worship and for community and to step away from the busyness and the deadlines and the to-do lists, um, I think that there's, like, there's this intentional rhythm of living that God has laid out for the people of Israel. And, you know, we could talk about a lot of different examples, but the Sabbath is, is one that comes to mind because it's sort of this like regular weekly holiday in Judaism where you prioritize family and special meals together. And I think most Christians would probably say Sunday is some of those things, but I think if we kind of press into God's covenant with the people of Israel and Sabbath being one example of that, Again, Passover would be another example. How could a Christian celebration of Easter be enriched and deepened by an understanding of key themes of Passover? Again, those two never should have been separated. And so, I, again, I think Christian practice can be 
enriched and deepened and enlivened by a deeper understanding of this long history between God and the people of Israel. Jennifer Rosner, a scholar of Jewish-Christian relations, has written Finding Messiah, a journey into the Jewishness of Jesus. Take us to a scene in the gospel that we would see differently if we were looking at it through the perspective of the Jewishness of Jesus. What comes to mind? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me, and I, and I write about this in the book, is this really curious passage in Matthew 9. It's this passage where the synagogue leaders has come to Jesus, his, and, and his daughter has just died, and he says, come right away. And then Jesus is heading there, and, and the story gets sort of interrupted by this woman with the problem of bleeding, which is like this very euphemistic language for what is actually a problem of genital discharge, going back to all these seemingly very obscure laws from Leviticus. And she touches what most English translations say is the cloak, the edge of Jesus's cloak. And then the story goes back to the synagogue leader's daughter, who Jesus touches and brings back to life. And so as I write about in the book, the passage seems kind of strange. Like, why is one story interrupted by another story and what, what is going on in these stories? And, and, and what I propose in the book is that if we read this passage through the lens of ritual purity, again, of Levitical prescriptions, it makes all the sense in the world. And it shows us how Jesus is working within the bounds of these purity laws, even while he is doing something radically new. So he's respecting the Torah. He's adhering to these laws, but Mm -hmm. he's also showing us that in him, something radically new happens rather than him becoming ritually impure by contacting sources of ritual impurity, by touching a corpse, by touching a woman with a problem of ritual bleeding. um, He's showing us that, that now this holiness that has always dwelt within the people of Israel is expanding outward into the world beyond. And I think that's a really key theme of the Gospels that, again, we see more clearly if we understand the context and the framework that it's coming within. And it really helps us understand what is our vocation as followers of Jesus look like if we, too, become these kind of agents of this outward flowing holiness in the world around us. Today on The Land and the Book, it's a conversation about finding Messiah, a journey into the Jewishness of Jesus. Our guest, Dr. Jennifer Rosner. Jennifer, how would you like to see pastors preach differently to help restore the rightful sense of the Jewishness of our faith? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, one of the things that comes to mind is what we've been talking about already, just a different approach to the New Testament in light of God's ongoing covenant with the people of Israel. There's so much that could be unpacked there. But I think another thing that I would touch on is a very long, dark, complicated history between Jews and Christians that that honestly a lot of Christians don't know very much about. So we talked earlier about Constantine and the Council of Nicaea and how there was this very political decision made to decouple Easter from Passover, we could sort of fast forward in church history and look at Martin Luther, for example. Martin Luther is this really important figure in Protestant Christianity and the Protestant Reformation, and he had so many amazing things to say in light of kind of the corruption that he was observing in the Catholic Church of his day. 
But what doesn't get talked about is that Luther had this very violent anti-Semitic shadow side mm-hmm. to him. Mm-hmm. And the things that he wrote about the Jewish people are just unbelievable and were actually used directly by Hitler in World War II to sort of bolster his own genocidal campaign against the Jewish people. And so there's this shadow side of church history that I think we need to acknowledge as Christians, especially when we think about and consider the ways that that has impacted the Jewish people over the centuries and the relationship between Christians and Jews over the centuries. So, you know, a lot of times Christians are shocked to learn that a lot of Jews think that Hitler was a Christian. And that Mm -hmm. seems so absurd, but there's reasons why Jews often associate Christians with anti-Semitism. And, you know, most Christians are shocked to learn this because that's the last thing they would want to be. But I think understanding these key pieces of church history and of biblical interpretation, there's a lot that Christians kind of carry around with them without even knowing it, especially when we talk about a Jewish person's perception of Christianity and Christians and Jesus. There's a lot of baggage there that I think is important that we talk about and preach about and unpack and and hopefully work toward repairing Well, that's well said. And, you know, this has been a personal journey of discovery for me as well, the very things that you have mentioned here. And we're going to land the conversation right there. Thanking you, though, Jennifer, for your insights, for your time. Again, the book, Finding Messiah, A Journey into the Jewishness of Jesus. Thanks for being with us, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Hey, stick around. More to come on The Land of the Book, a fresh set of Bible questions. Maybe one of them is yours. Find out next. From Moody Radio, it's The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. This is segment three, where we look at questions that uh, have come to you as you've opened your Bible. Charlie, that stack of questions is always a a thick one, but it means people are reading their Bibles, and that's a good thing. That's a great thing, John. Uh, Yeah, asking questions is one of the keys for understanding the Word of God. Well, here's another question. Did you know that most Jewish people have never heard the gospel? It's true. Each week we talk about Israel and the Jewish people, and it's important to remember that they, like everyone else, need to hear the good news. And that's why Life in Messiah, a ministry in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. We've interviewed several Life in Messiah staff on our show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God is doing around the world through them. Well, now Life in Messiah is offering a free gift to Moody listeners. It's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook, which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people and will equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them. All right, question number one of the day. This listener says, I'm writing about the Samaritans. Can you uh, kind of explain to me who the Samaritans are with supporting Bible passages, maybe? Yeah, well, the Samaritans are descendants of those people from the northern kingdom of Israel who intermarried with pagans following the destruction of the northern kingdom. In 2 Kings 17, we're told the Israelites who lived in Samaria were deported to Assyria, 
while people from other nations captured by the Assyrians were brought into Samaria. Now, it's almost certain the Assyrians didn't deport every single person who lived in the northern kingdom. Uh, Most likely, the poorest of the land were left to care for the land and pay taxes to the Assyrians. They're the ones who intermarried with those who were brought in. Now, in Ezra chapter 4, these individuals living in Samaria opposed the initial rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. They also opposed the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. We're told about that in Nehemiah chapter 4. Over time, the Samaritans adopted a corrupted form of Judaism. That involved accepting only the first five books of Moses with some significant changes. For example, their version of the Pentateuch has God commanding Israel to set up an altar on Mount Gerizim. Uh, This became the basis for the rival temple that they set up on that mountain. That temple was later destroyed by a Jewish leader about a hundred years before the birth of Jesus. That destruction generated additional animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews, And, by the way, that's the temple the Samaritan woman at the well was referring to in John chapter 4. Steve asks, uh, many years ago I made a note in Ephesians 6 where it talks about the armor of God. I can't recall why I made this particular note, and I've not seen any commentaries addressing what my note touches on. The note says, having versus taking. I'm not sure why I made it, but it was likely prompted by what I heard in a sermon. Is there any significance to having versus taking the armor in uh, this passage, as my old note seems to suggest? Does the original language provide any clues as to why the English translators made these distinctions? Yes, Steve, I have notes like that in my Bible, too. You know, they made sense when I wrote them down, but now I'm not sure exactly why I wrote that. And hopefully some of these thoughts might jog your memory. The command to take up the armor is, it's an aorist tense in the Greek, and while the NIV translates it put on, I think the New American Standard in this case is probably a more literal translation. Uh, The picture is a Paul calling on the reader to deliberately pick up and fasten on each piece of armor he's about to describe. And then Paul uses the typical armor worn by a Roman soldier. You know, it might be the very soldier that was standing guard over him as he's writing this letter to explain what we're to wear to protect ourselves against attacks uh, from the forces and powers of darkness and spiritual wickedness that try to harm us. Uh, We're to put on these pieces of armor, he says, in order that we will be able to resist or stand in opposition to those forces in the evil day. And Paul's understanding is that by doing so, we'll be successful because we'll be able to continue to stand firm. Now, having told us what to do, Paul then explains how we're to do it. Uh, structurally, Paul gives two specific commands. He says, stand in verse 14, and then take in verse 17. They're both aorist imperative commands. Uh, The other verbs in the section are participles, which denote either means or cause. That is, in the first case, Paul could be saying, you stand by means of fastening your belt of truth, or stand by making sure your belt of truth is securely fastened. But in either case, the thought is that the specific actions that follow are the actions that will cause you to be able to stand or the means by which you'll be able to stand. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Thanks for your company today. A question now from Dean, dealing with the death of the firstborn when Israel was in Egypt. Here you go. Two questions, Charlie. Was there a maximum age for the firstborn to die? For instance, if I was a firstborn son, but I was 50 years old, would I still have perished if the blood of the lamb did not cover our household? Also, if my parents had two children and the oldest child was a girl and the second born was a male, would the male child have died without the blood of the lamb as a covering? Yeah, we're not given direct answers in the Bible, so I need to be just a bit tentative here. But here's my best guess based on the details we know. First, 
God doesn't put any time limit on the age of the one to be put to death. He simply says, every firstborn son in Egypt will die. He then expands that to include all the firstborn of the cattle as well, presumably the firstborn male cattle. Uh, So I would assume the statement did include all firstborn males of whatever age. And even if a girl was the first child born, it was the firstborn male child who was destined to inherit the double share of the father's property. So the firstborn male, even if he had an older sister, would be the one who was put to death. Uh, Second, we might have indirect confirmation of the death of even the adult firstborn males from, it's called a dream stella. It was found between the feet of the Sphinx. This large inscription was set up by a pharaoh, Thutmose IV, and uh, the pharaoh said the Sphinx told him if he would remove the sand that piled up around it, the Sphinx would make him the next pharaoh. But if Thutmose IV was the firstborn son, well, he was going to become pharaoh automatically. So why would he put up this inscription uh, saying that uh, he was going to become pharaoh if he cleaned the Sphinx off? I think what it shows is in somewhat indirectly that he may not have been planning to be pharaoh in fact his older brother was but uh he cleaned the, the sphinx off the sphinx said he'd be pharaoh and then his older brother died and indeed he became pharaoh now i'm sorry to ramble on that but in the absence of clear biblical information we do need to be cautious but the bible does seem to imply that god's judgment came on all firstborn males regardless of age and this dream stella at the sphinx at least suggests the second born adult child felt he needed to provide an explanation as to why he ultimately became king rather than his older brother. From Brian comes this question. There is a reference in 2 Maccabees to Jeremiah placing the Ark of the Covenant along with the tent and the altar of incense and then sealing the cave. It says the location is lost, but in the area of Sinai. Of course, the book is not inspired and not reliable. Do you think it's a legend, total invention by the author, or possibly based on some oral history? Yeah, well, when it comes to the books of Maccabees, uh, 1 Maccabees is not scripture, but it's pretty good history. 2 Maccabees, though, is far more fanciful and unreliable. Now, here's just one example. That same record says Jeremiah was acting under divine guidance, and he commanded the tent of the Lord's presence and the covenant box to follow him to the mountain where Moses had looked down on the land, which, by the way, would be not Mount Sinai, but uh, Mount Nebo. But I see a key problem here. Jeremiah supposedly got the Ark of the Covenant, the Tent of Meeting, and then it also goes on, it says the incense altar to follow him to Mount Nebo. Uh, He commanded these inanimate objects to follow him to the mountain. It reminds me of the Disney's Sorcerer's Apprentice, you know, where Mickey commanded the broom to carry the water. Well, things like that can happen in cartoons, but it's hard to picture how an incense altar and an Ark of the Covenant could walk along beside Jeremiah. So I think that the Ark of the Covenant became nothing more than a gold-covered box once the glory of God left the temple. Uh, And it was taken by the Babylonians and melted down. And in Jeremiah 3.16, we're told that in the future, it won't be missed, nor would another one be made. Carol says, in discussing C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, 12 third graders were asked many questions, and one concerned lying. Everyone, every single student answered that they lie. We're a school, and it is rather sad to see their honesty but deciding to lie is very unsettling. Do you have a way to discuss this with them? Yeah, and I actually see a mixed blessing in their response. Uh, I think students were being honest with themselves when they admit to lying, and I think it's uh, pretty safe to say everyone has lied since we're all sinners, but I think you can use it as an opportunity to help them understand that lying and and other sins from God's perspective. In Romans 1 to 3, Paul shows everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike are sinners. In describing the Gentiles in chapter 1, he says they do things like practice deceit, which is lying. It's a verbal form of deceit. 
Paul turns to the Jews in chapter 2 and says they give false testimony, which is lying. And then in chapter 3, he says everyone's guilty of sin, and he quotes Psalm 5, verse 9, their tongues practice deceit. So his conclusion is that everyone sins and falls short of the glory of God. I think another good possibility is to take him to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Paul summarizes the end times there, and he says it's going to be going from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That is, people will lie to others, and they'll themselves be lied to. And get the students to discuss why those traits are so damaging to society, helping them understand lying from God's perspective and from the perspective of how it tears down society could help turn the entire conversation in a very positive way. Thanks, Charlie. And we're looking forward to your devotional. It's coming up next here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Stay with us. Question for you. How many mountains can you name in Israel? Think for a moment. There's Mount Sinai, right? You think of Moses on Mount Sinai, Mount Carmel, or where Elijah made his bold stand for God. Now, coming up on the land of the book, Dr. Charlie Dyer has us hiking up two mountains. Better lace up your boots and gear up. And while you're doing that, let's listen to this Holy Land experience. I am Van Hodges from the south suburbs of Chicago. After having the privilege of going to Israel for the first time in 1997, I was so captivated by the area that I have returned every year since. I have traveled the entire length and width of the country. I am somewhat surprised that only a small minority of Christians make an effort to travel to this wonderful land where much of the Bible took place, especially where the gospel events of Jesus' life happened. We see so many breathtaking, beautiful nature scenes and numerous archaeological ruins, which all continue to validate the Bible, the Word of God. What is more amazing is all this can be seen within such a tiny country. My favorite location, by far, is the Garden Tomb, a nearby skull-looking stone hill. It only makes sense to me that God would allow the world to see the location where the world-changing event of Jesus' sacrificial crucifixion and resurrection from the dead took place. Charlie, lots of mountains there in Israel, and yet you've got us traveling to two today. Why not just one? Uh, Because this story can only be told in a valley between two mountains. All right, I'm listening. Well, today we're continuing our seven-part series on mountaintop experiences in the Bible, and we're going to stand with Joshua and the children of Israel at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. This happens to be one of my favorite spots in the whole land, and unfortunately, It's a place that isn't visited by many tourists because of the political realities of life in the Middle East. And that's a shame because there are few places with as much historical and biblical significance. The ancient city of Shechem stood in a narrow valley between these two peaks. The patriarchs Abraham and Jacob both spent time here. This is where Jesus met the woman at the well in John 4. In fact, she very likely was pointing at Mount Gerizim as she told him, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But our mountaintop experience today takes us to Ebal and Gerizim with General Joshua, the commander of Israel's army. Actually, we want to visit this site with Joshua on two separate occasions. The first takes place early in Israel's campaign of conquest, following his initial victories at Jericho and Ai, or Ai. Joshua gained control of the strategic passes leading into the hill country from the Jordan Valley at that time. 
Though other campaigns lay ahead, Joshua's first order of business was to fulfill a command given to the nation by Moses himself. In Deuteronomy 11, Moses had issued a direct command from God to the people of Israel while they were still in the wilderness. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. Israel was to travel to these two mountains and then to use the mountains as object lessons to remember the two pathways of life stretching out in front of the nation and the results to which each pathway led. Two separate mountains, two opposite choices, two different destinies. As soon as the way was physically open, Joshua interrupted his campaign of conquest and brought the people of Israel to this sacred site. Joshua climbed up Mount Ebal and built an altar. He also inscribed the law of Moses on a stone monument. Then Joshua divided the people so that half stood on Mount Ebal and half on Mount Gerizim as he read the blessings and cursings of the law. Those on Mount Gerizim responded as the blessings were read, and those on Mount Ebal responded as the cursings were read. This solemn ceremony of acknowledgement and dedication took place on the two mountain peaks named by Moses. But what was the purpose for the ceremony? I believe these mountains were chosen because it's one place in Israel where two peaks seem to rise so dramatically in opposite directions. Ebal to the north, Gerizim to the south. They present a stark division with a deep valley between. And the choices facing Israel were just as stark. They could choose to obey God or to disobey. And in response, God promised to send his blessings or his judgments on the land and the people. But why did Joshua put the altar on Mount Ebal, the mountain representing the covenant curses? Maybe it was to remind the nation that God's only provision for sin would be through the death of another, a substitute, who would need to take their place. This must have been a dramatic scene, a sacred mountaintop experience where God laid out the two contrasting choices, obedience or disobedience, and their ultimate results. But it's also the only mountaintop experience I know that seems to have been repeated. After all the battles had been fought, the land subdued, the people settled, Joshua summoned the nation back to Shechem one last time. He was near the end of his life, about to pass off the scene. For the new generation already arising, the events of the exodus and conquest were little more than historical stories passed down from their parents. This new generation needed its own mountaintop experience at Ebal and Gerizim. So Joshua called on the nation to return to the shadow of these two great peaks for one final gathering. Joshua began by rehearsing the history of the nation, and then he challenged the new generation to follow the Lord. This mountaintop experience, like the one before, was intended to be a sacred decision time. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, he shouted. Joshua made a covenant drew up for them decrees and laws, recorded the words in the book of the law, and set up a large stone as a visible reminder. Every action on this day was intended to bring the next generation back to the same decision point as their parents. Being a follower of God is not something inherent in our DNA. It's a conscious choice that needs to be embraced by every generation. Joshua didn't ask anyone that day to do something he hadn't already done himself. 
after challenging them to choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Joshua then made it abundantly clear which choice he had made. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So what truth can we carry home from our time with Joshua on Ebal and Gerizim? Perhaps the most important truth is the reality that life can be reduced to two basic choices. We can choose to follow God by obeying what he said in his word, or we can choose to disobey. But as we make our choice, we need to understand that each path leads to a different destination. One leads to blessing, while the other leads to pain, hardship, and ultimately judgment. We can choose which path we'll follow, but we can't alter the destination to which each path leads. The wages of sin is death. And much of the hurt and heartache we see around us today is the result of someone's deliberate choice to disobey God. But I see another truth in this mountaintop experience that we also need to remember. God had Joshua set up his altar on Mount Ebal, the mountain of cursing. It was a reminder that God provides a way back from sin. Even if you've made the wrong life choices in the past, it's not too late to change. The Bible says that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ebal and Gerizim, two mountains representing two different life choices, each with its own set of consequences. And Joshua's voice is still ringing in our ears. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. You know, Charlie, as I listen to this devotional, I'm sure there's someone listening now who admits they've made the wrong choice, and they hear you speaking of God providing a way back from sin. That's them. They want that. Would you pray for them right now shortly? I will. Uh, Father, we do pray for anyone listening who looks at their life and says, Lord, I've made wrong choices. Uh, You've said, if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray for them right now that they would make that choice and then choose to follow you. If they don't know your son as their savior, Lord, help them to make that choice, that first choice now. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen. And if you would like to make that choice to follow Jesus, but you've got questions, why not get some answers? You can talk with a a friendly volunteer right now when you dial 888-NEED-HIM. 888-NEED-HIM. There's no cost, no pressure, no obligation. Just a frank and open conversation about knowing Jesus. 888-NEED-HIM. Our Facebook page is always ready for you. Visit us at thelandandthebook.org and click on that Facebook icon. I'm John Gager for our host, Charlie Dyer, our producer, Dan Anderson. Do come back next week for another edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.